Well, as you find your seat this morning, uh, you're going to want to I want to make sure you have some sermon notes. If you didn't get some, run back and pick those up. Uh, my, my computer is not on speaking terms with the projector, so uh, there won't be anything on the screen. So you're going to need your, your notes to, to figure out where we are and you know how long till lunch and all that kind of stuff. So um, grab some notes. I've been thinking about lunch. I've been thinking about meals. And uh, you know it's, it's fairly obvious if you average... You know, just average three meals a day. That means you have well over a thousand meals a year. So you can basically just take your age and multiply by a thousand, and that's how many meals you've eaten in your life. You know, more than that. So you know, if you're 16 years old, you know, 16,000 meals. That's a lot of food. I have to multiply by 53. So you know, I I wondered what would 53,000 meals look like if you piled it all up at once, or. Or some of you have reached, you know, 80 years old, 80,000 meals. Really, you've, you've eaten a lot. Congratulations. But my question for you is, uh, is not really so much about the food exactly. My question is, how many of those thousands of meals can you remember? How many could you actually describe? I thought about that this week and, and uh, just tried to think, you know, really quickly, how many meals could I can I think of, and which ones did I think of first? I I thought of uh, being in high school, and my oldest sister came home with her husband uh, one weekend, and we all had a family dinner, and the announcement came that the first grandchild was on the way. So it was a big celebration. My my parents' first grandchild, little baby Ryan, came. Well, he's 35 now, so I don't think he wants to be called baby Ryan. But anyway, he was on his way. And, and you know, years later, of course, when I had kids, it's sort of like, well, send us a postcard and we'll keep it in mind. But, but the first one, you know, it's a big deal. So I remember that meal. I remember uh, taking Melanie out for dinner, our favorite restaurant. Honey, get, the lo- get the lobster. Come on, go ahead. Get the lobster because after dinner, you know, it was the uh, will you marry me thing. And and uh, so uh, the, the night we got engaged, I remember that meal, and, and, and then the fact that she was up all night throwing up lobster makes it all the more memorable. <clears throat> I'm hoping it was the lobster, not the commitment she had just made. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's, that's worked out over. I, I definitely remember that. I remember very clearly the view uh, out over the city of San Francisco where we went to celebrate my parents' 50th anniversary. I remember one of the first meals I ever had in Camas and Washougal. It was actually in Camas at, at the Manuel's house. Some of you uh, remember the Manuel's. Nick was chairman of the Deacon Board 18 years ago, and they flew, flew us into town to talk about whether, you know, I should be working here. And we had discussions, and I met the deacons, and, you know, that's terrifying. But we had this, this meal. It was the only meal I can ever remember where... Uh, for as long, actually longer than people ate, the hostess, Kathy, and you, if you know her, you totally could believe this, um, she was making food. Everyone was done, and she was still making food. You know, we're all done. She's like, hey, try this. I just made this. But anyway, so that was very memorable. And of course, well, we, we did agree, and you know, almost 18 years later, I'm still here. So that must have been a good meal. Now, food in these occasions, of course, makes those events richer, but it's not really the significance, is it? Not in the meals that are most special, the things we most remember. The significance is the relationships and the events that are happening in connection to those relationships. That's really why we remember them. And so it's true with today's subject. We think about the Lord's Supper today, about communion. 
We're going to do three things today with that. First of all, we want to think a little bit about what it is. Sometimes we, we to be honest, we kind of, well, we rush through it a bit. And we're going to, to think more about it today. We're going to think about what is the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to think, how do we worship within that? Maybe that's something you've wondered at times. Yeah, we do this thing, and it's a little bread and this cup and that kind of thing. But, but how is that worship? We'll think about that. And then, of course, we will celebrate it together. We'll eat together. First of all, what is worship? It's been said that uh, the Lord's Supper is something that maybe most unites the church around the world. And yet it also creates much division. It, it unites us in that when you look around all the variations of how people do church, in virtually almost every form, you'll find uh, the Lord's Supper. You'll find communion. You'll find people taking some bread and a cup and remembering Christ's death in that. And yet at the same time, while it's found in all the churches, <clears throat> it, there's also a lot of debate about lots of issues about communion, and sometimes it actually divides. Now, there are a lot of things that the Bible actually doesn't speak to. It doesn't tell us some things that people would like to know about the Lord's Supper. For example, uh, well, what kind of bread could you use? A, a hoagie roll? I don't know, that's what I got up here. Could, could you use that? Is an oyster cracker okay? We're, we're kind of hoping so around here. You know, do, do you have to use unleavened bread? You know, what kind of bread do you have to use? And what should go in the cup? Is grape juice okay? Would, would wine be okay? Would diluted, is diluted wine because it's probably what they had? You know, is that what we should have? What about Dr. Pepper? Would that be okay? I, I don't know. I mean, and, and if it was okay, would you want to drink it? Because it tastes so nasty, you know? So Dr. Pepper, that is. So anyway, we, we have these questions, but we look and we're like, I, I'm not hearing anything. How about, how about uh, who can eat the Lord's Supper? What age do you have to be? And who decides that? Should the church decide that, or is that up to you? Is that up to a person and, and your conscience to know whether or not you should be taking the Lord's Supper? And who can administer it? Is it? Could anyone do this? Would anyone pray over these things and then offer them? Is it okay for anyone to do that? Or, or should I have a robe on? Should I run back and see if we've got an old robe back there before I do that? Or, or straighten my collar or, you know, do something else? Do I need to have those things? Well, again, silence. <laughs> we don't know. And how often should we take communion? Is once a month okay? Because that's what we do. Oh, and it's once a month, but every once in a while, you'll notice, we have communion on a special service in the middle of the week, so if you don't come, you miss a month. Is that all right? What about if it was every week? What about if it was every day? Someone came up after the last service and says, do you think it would be K, or what would happen if you celebrated the Lord's Supper at every meal that you ate? Interesting question. Well, we don't really get the answer there. So we're going to have to understand that lots of things revolving around the Lord's Supper are areas of freedom that we're going to have to decide what we do based on wisdom and some principles, but understand there's a lot of freedom there, so we don't want to get too judgmental about that. We want to be wise, but we need to be careful. So here's the, the principle I'd like to lay down. It comes from John chapter 6. This will kind of get us help going in the right direction here. In John 6, there is a story that... Um, that is probably familiar to most of you. Jesus is out teaching to uh, thousands of people, and they love to hear him teach, and it's out in the middle of nowhere, and, and you know what happens. Well, people get hungry, right? And they didn't have very much food. They only had a little bread and a little fish, and Jesus miraculously takes that 
and is able to expand that to, to satisfy the stomachs of thousands of people. It's a miracle. It, it, it's, it's a free lunch. Now, people get really, really excited about that. Understand, in, in, throughout most of history, and certainly their culture too, most of life, I mean, you worked hours every day just trying to secure food for that day. It, there, this was the first fast food. They'd never experienced drive through before. And here's Jesus, like, fast food. And people loved it. They went wild for it. They'd never seen McDonald's, but they were starting to get a vision for it. They're like, wow, this is great. We didn't work all day for this. They're very excited, and they start following him around the countryside and running around the lake and doing all this crazy stuff. And Jesus senses that even though he taught them lots of great truths, they were very excited about the free lunch. And Jesus, I think, wanting to help them understand they're missing the point, he says about himself, I am the bread of heaven. I'm the bread of life. You know, you're chasing me for a meal that sustains you for a day. You should be chasing me not for for a meal. You should be chasing me for me. I'm the bread of life. This is his point. But this sparks a little debate. The religious leaders are first, and they're like, wait a second. Bread from heaven? Who is this guy, and who does he think he is? And, and, and even if he is, what does it mean to bread? He can't be bread. What is he going to do? Give us his flesh to eat? That's ridiculous. And it sparks this little debate. Now, Jesus does this really interesting thing in, in verse 54. He says, Whoever eats my flesh... And drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Now, it's a really fascinating thing what Jesus does, because he has this opportunity. He could have so easily, and I know I would have, and obviously it wasn't the right thing to do, and so there's a problem, but, but he could have so easily gone, whoa, 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 guys, you know, bread of heaven, you're misunderstanding me here. You know, calm down, let me straighten this out for you. He doesn't do it. He goes all PG-13 on us. Like, ooh, eating flesh, drinking blood. And, and moms are running, you know, to cover their children's ears. And they're like, we're out of this church. And this is crazy talk and cannibalism. And, you know, what is going on here? See, Jesus could have calmed that. Instead, he pushes their buttons. Why? Is he having a bad day? <laughs> Agitated? No, because you see, here's the issue at hand, is what are they going to determine is most important? And he's not going to let them off that debate easily. He's going to push back on that. He's like, hey, all right, you're troubled by that? My my flesh is food. You've got to drink my blood. How about that? And they're like, now even the disciples are troubled. But see, Jesus said it's real food. It's real drink. Don't understand that. That doesn't mean material food. That word real is actually the word true. It's true food. Now, this really accomplishes what food does. My flesh, my blood. Now the disciples, now they're getting creeped out a little bit. They're like, oh, Jesus, you know, we're we're like, we're associated with you and we're kind of getting uncomfortable about this. And he's aware of that, that they're grumbling. And Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Does it offend you? It says, the Spirit gives life. Here's the principle. The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit. These are spiritual things that lead to spiritual life, eternal life. 
And so here's our, our big idea of the day, and that is that Jesus is food for your soul. Material bread gives you physical life, material life for a day. In the same way, though, and in a bigger way, Jesus gives life to your soul. He's the nourishment. He's the sustenance. If you go without physical food for a few days, you know, you won't have physical life. But Jesus was very clear. He who has the Son has life. Life eternal, the big life, the life that's really life, that extends beyond the limitations of material things. He is real food. Jesus is a food for your soul. Now, what is most clear about the Lord's Supper? When we turn to the Scriptures, what do we get? We start, I think, from that principle that Jesus' words are spirit and they are life. We understand, then, that the Lord's Supper is not about material food. It's not your lunch. We're going we're to provide you a meal today. You're going to still be hungry, physically speaking. You're still going to, you know, run, get a lunch, probably, it's not about material food. It, is, it has everything to do with Jesus and what he's done for you and your connection to him and how to be connected to him. It, it also, we learn in the scripture, and we won't really talk about this today, but in 1 Corinthians, we understand that because it's not about physical food, it's, it's something we do together. And the Corinthians were the ones that, that kind of went down the path the wrong way the first point, and they, they made it into a meal, and it was about satisfying their stomachs, and that caused them to hurt each other's feelings, and some people were getting drunk, and that's a sin, and all this kind of, all, all, all of these problems started to crop up. And so, you know, we have really small portions. You can't really, there's no gluttony going to happen in our Lord's Supper. We, we kind of took care of that for you. But they had those problems. So, but it is something we, do, we need to do together as God's family. We understand as well that it's a serious thing, but it's a wonderful and joyous thing and a way to worship God. Now, what's our starting point? How are we to understand this meal? I want to suggest to you that we should view it as a covenant meal. In doing some reading again, kind of refreshing my, uh, myself on, on what people are saying about the Lord's Supper, I did some reading, and it, it's just struck me how many people start that debate with the thoughts and words of 16th century theologians, you know, as, as though they had the first ideas on this. And, it, and they never get around to what was on the mind of the disciples and on Jesus when he instituted the Lord's Supper. And that was, very clearly, a covenant meal. Now, a covenant meal is a, is a ceremony, if you will, that, that establishes, first of all, uh, an agreement between two parties, and then if you continue to eat that meal in commemoration of that, it's a celebration of that. It's a, a covenant is, is an agreement between two groups or two kings, two nations, a king and his people or God and his people. And, and it's very common in the Old Testament. And sometimes those agreements, those contracts, which were viewed as, as God always being involved, which I think is why covenants aren't so popular anymore. We have contracts, but we're only accountable to each other. But see, covenants were contracts where God was involved. And so, you know, it kind of ups the responsibility, right? But, but sometimes those agreements were established at a meal. Isaac and Abimelech in Genesis 26 founded a covenant, and they did that at a meal. Jacob and Laban in Genesis 31 did that around a meal. 
In Luke 22, we see the disciples arriving at a meal and Jesus arriving that evening, all expecting to share a covenant meal. It was Passover. It was Passover. In Luke 22, we read, The hour came, and Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Passover was a covenant meal that that celebrated, commemorated, and reflected back uh, on the Exodus. The Exodus was that grouping of events, the plagues and the, the, the angel that came by and the lamb and the blood on the doorposts and the journey through the sea and the going to the mountain of the God and receiving the Ten Commandments and the establishing of, of the covenant relationship between God and his people. Here are the terms of the covenant. And this meal at first initially was a part of how God saved them. That blood was absolutely, that first night, important that they be saved. The blood from the lamb that they ate was important in saving them physically from death. Now, in Passover, the Hebrew people continued to commemorate that and celebrate that, and all the elements of that meal were little object lessons and reminders. Well, I shouldn't say little. They were rich symbols and and object lessons of the events of the Exodus. And everything had kind of a, a, a different meaning and a different purpose. And this is what the disciples are observing. That God is a, is a redeeming kind of God who brings people out of things like slavery in Egypt. And so we read that after taking the cup, Jesus gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He takes a cup, but it's not the cup that we use in communion, it's probably one of four cups in, well, it is one of four cups observed in the Passover, probably the second one. So Luke takes us into the middle of Passover, and he kind of drops us in with a little context. He said that's what they're doing. And the second cup, he says, this is a part of the Passover observance. He says, share this with each other. And then it goes on. He took bread, he gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, Now this, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now he takes bread, and and the interesting thing is, in, in this meal, this is the main portion of the meal where you ate most of the food, and all the elements have a meaning, except there's this one piece of bread, and even now you can read Jewish scholars who say, you know, there is this one piece of bread. We don't really quite know what that's about it. We're confused. We're not sure what the purpose of that one is and what the meaning is. That's the piece Jesus picks up and goes, that is my body. That's my body broken for you. He goes from, it goes from this broad concept that God is a redeeming God who redeems us from things like slavery to God is a redeeming God in my flesh, in my blood, that redeems people from sin and death forever. So in the same way, after supper, he takes the cup. He says, now, this cup is, get ready, drum roll, the new covenant in my blood. We've been celebrating, we've been observing the institution of the old covenant. Now the bread and the third cup represent a new covenant. We're going to have a new kind of relationship. There's new terms happening here. And it's in the midst of Passover that Jesus does that. That third cup was the cup of redemption in Passover. Now it's the cup of of the new covenant 
of how God redeems us through Christ's death. We've gone from Passover to Lord's Supper, from the Exodus events to the the, the death and resurrection of Christ, from the Mosaic Covenant to the New Covenant. And these would have been startling words for the disciples. Just amazingly, profound. Like, seriously? We're here for, for, for the arrival of the New Covenant, a new way of God relating to people? New terms. It's not based on the law anymore. It will be based on the death of Christ. Now, as a covenant meal, there are several things now that begin to fall into place. First of all, we know that this is not a new sacrifice. There are people celebrating a form of the Lord's Supper today whose theology says that every time you celebrate this, Jesus dies again. There has to be a fresh sacrifice or, or it doesn't mean anything right now. And, and what we know in a covenant meal is that can't possibly be true. It's established once, and then you're either in that covenant or you're not. And, and that's why the Bible says Jesus died once for all. He died, he completed that. His own words, it's finished. And now he's, he's alive forever at, at the right hand of his Father. We also know, because it's a covenant meal... That it's all about grace, but, but this is not a, a piece of grace that you don't already have, see? It's about a gracious God, but this is not a means of obtaining grace that you do not already have. Either you stand in grace because of Jesus Christ, or you stand outside of grace because of it, and this meal is not what takes you there or keeps you there. Or gives you more of it. Either you have access to the grace that comes through Christ, or you don't. So it's not a means of grace, though it's all about God's grace. We know that because it's a covenant meal. It's an agreement. And so if you're in relationship with with God today through Christ, that's true because of the terms of the new covenant. Now, you may not have heard that before, and you may not know what the contract is and what the terms are, but that's the truth, and that's the reality of it, because that's what God offers. Unfortunately, he doesn't make you, you know, study the contract and, and all, all that kind of stuff, but it comes through faith, and, and you enter into relationship through that new covenant. It's about what he's done. It's a spiritual reality, and it's a great opportunity to worship. And, of course, we're in a worship series. One of the things we've learned is that worship isn't something you can just do outwardly. So when you come, and if all you do is swallow these little bits of food, then all you've done is taken in a very minuscule amount of physical nourishment. Not very much. But if, for you, it is a connection to God, and it is a spiritual act, then it's worship. It's worship. This coming to do this as a physical act will not gain you anything. But the meal is a context for worship. For celebrating the Lord's Supper is one of the most meaningful ways that we worship God. Now, how do we do that? How do we worship? We're going to look at several key phrases Think, first of all, about giving thanks, because the Lord's Supper is always an opportunity to worship God in thanking Him. Imagine for a moment, before we get to um, 1 Corinthians 11, imagine for a moment that God, as He designed life, He just created us really different. I think there's some, I don't know if we have any botanists here, but I think there's some plants that get all their nutrients out of the air 
you know? And they just live by living in the air and they get everything they need right out of there. What if we didn't eat, we didn't need to eat, or we couldn't eat, but we got everything we needed, physically speaking, right out of the air? So, you know, you're like, I'm so hungry. Whew, ah, there, feeling much better now, right? Someone pointed out to me last night, no one would ever eat in Camas. <laughs> Sorry, but, you know, we're in Washougal, and we don't have much if we don't pick on Camas. So. <clears throat> so think of how much life would be different. Oh, there, there are no meals, so you're not in a hurry to get to lunch, so I can talk as long as I want. <laughs> okay, not that one, but there's no meals, uh, um, what else? Let me find it in my notes here. Oh, well, no farms. There's no farming. And we've got all these tractors and nothing to do with them except race them or take them to the tractor pull. I don't know. You know, it's like there's no farms. Think of how much transportation there is, trucks and trains and all this stuff, and how much of it is moving food around so people can get it. Well, all that goes away. A bunch of stores. Uh, we just don't need them. Sorry, Freddy's. You can just cut your store in half. We don't need that other part. You know, no Winco, no Safeway, no, you know, wherever you shop. We don't need those stores. No restaurants. No drive throughs You're getting sad, you know. No KFC after church today because you just, you know, you can just smell it like this at my house. It's like, get your chicken right out of the air. None of that exists. Think about how we, uh, how we experience hospitality and how much of it centers around food. If you took that away, I just envision us all sitting around going, what do we do now? <laughs> Life would be so different. It makes me think, well then, God wasn't random, was he? Think about how different it would have been. He must have been really, really intentional then. And of course, he was. Because every meal is an opportunity to remember that God is good. And we have to keep coming back to another meal, and we need another meal, and it's not very long before we need another meal. Now, what is one of the most difficult things in this world? I think one of the most difficult things is while the world bombards us and beats us down, is to maintain with all sincerity and determination the reality and truth that God is good. God is good. And three times a day at least, you have the opportunity as God brings you back and goes, here, eat this. Have this gift. Here, you can have this. To say, it's true. I'm having a hard day. I'm having a hard week. I'm having a hard life. But it's true again. It was true at breakfast. It's true at lunch. It's true at dinner. God is good. He blesses me. He gives and he gives and he gives. First Corinthians 11, Paul says, the, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he, and when he had given thanks, he continued on. He, he gave thanks. Sharing a meal in those days was a, a, a unique experience. There was, a, there was an understanding that when you shared a meal, you would give thanks, you would say a blessing over that meal, and now it, it was connected to that physical food. So if you you asked God's blessing on something, and then you shared that together, you would share in that blessing as well. Whatever God was going to do there, uniquely and specially gracing us in some unique way, he would, he would do that for anyone who ate that food. 
Now, this is why the Pharisee, one of the reasons why, the Pharisees had such a problem with Jesus' eating habits. He ate with sinners. See, I think one of their objections would be, listen, Jesus, this isn't working, you see, because these people don't deserve anything good from God. You're blessing food and then sharing it with them. You're, you're communicating to them. You're, you're, you're bringing to them some sense of God's goodness that they don't deserve. And now we understand. Oh, that's why Jesus didn't just talk to sinners. He made sure he got to a place where he could sit down. He could bless food and say, see, God does want to bless your life. This is his point. (laughs) I came to save sinners. So he ate with people like us. And we can be thankful for that. In Ephesians 1.3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. As we come to any meal, and especially the Lord's Supper, it's an opportunity to give thanks for so many things, and at the very pinnacle of that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And all blessings are connected to him and, and, and flow through him. He gives life. He redeems life. He sustains life. And blessings come to us through him. It's important that in the midst of problems and challenges that we not lose track of our ability to give thanks to God. We're going to celebrate, um, we're going to eat in, in just a few minutes, but I want to give you an opportunity right now to just pause and to thank God for some things. Would you, in, in silent prayer, list some things off for God that you're thankful for today? Let's do that. Even as you count your blessings and give praise to God, be sure to thank him now for the Lord Jesus. Greatest blessing. Father, we admit that our list should be much, much longer. And there is probably no amount of time that would be wrong to commit to giving you thanks and praise. And yet we do that today. And and most of all, Father, though you've blessed us in many ways, we thank you for your Son, whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for us. To pay for our sin, to redeem us from death, and to give us life. And we praise you for him. Amen. So giving thanks is a worship activity that's easy to do in the Lord's Supper. 
It's another thing. Jesus said that we to eat and to drink in remembrance of him. Remembering is a worship activity. Now, this flag um, came from my father's funeral. Uh, This uh, draped his uh, coffin at the uh, graveside. And uh, he was a World War II vet. And um, so the Navy sent out a commander and another guy, and they did the whole ceremony and with the flag and and uh, no cannons or anything like that. But uh, but but it was it was very nice. Now I have this in my office, and I will often um, oh just about every week I look up at the top of my bookcase and I and I see that flag and I remember my dad. I remember my dad. I don't just have a mental recollection of my dad. I think instantly, I think part of, because of the symbol, uh, deeply about who he was. My dad, it's true, served in World War II. Um, He grew up in a small town outside of Yakima on an apple orchard, and he had classmates that uh, died in the war. His brother-in-law, my my uncle, um, was at Pearl Harbor, blown off the deck of his ship um, into the water. He survived and um, his ship was one of the few that actually made it out of the channel, and he was left behind swimming in the water. Uh, you know, so he had all these experiences, and, and after he died, just reading through his journals and seeing the experience of, and, and some of you I know lived through that, seeing his experience of, of not fearing death, but knowing it could come in his life and in, in that experience. Uh, so, but, but he was in the Navy. He had all these friends. He had my uncle and so forth. But his, uh, he, he got an assignment. He, got, he married my mom, and uh, they were assigned to uh, live on the beach in Miami, Florida for a couple years. And, uh, and he was uh, an officer, and he was in charge of a hangar that, that had parts for torpedo bombers, and that's where they did training and stuff. And so I just know, I don't think he really thought that this would happen when he died. I'm not sure it was, he was conscious of that, but I know what he would have said if he could have seen it and said anything, it would have been like, oh, don't do that. I don't, I don't really deserve that. Not, not like those guys. And so when I see that, I, I recall my dad, but I think about so much more. I think about his humility, I think about his values, and all that stuff just comes back really fast. This is sort of this package deal. It's not just like, oh yeah, I had a dad. And so we come to the Lord's Supper, and Jesus says, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Not like, oh, what was that guy's name? Uh, Jesus. (laughs) But remember me. Let it be to you this experience that sort of is, is deep and wonderful about who I am and the things I taught you. A deep experience that remembering is a is an active word. Now you have busy lives. You have a work schedule. Probably you have a home in some way. You take care of your finances and appointments and ministry that God's given you to do. You've got people in your life. They take they fill life a lot. You got family in some way and friends and and you got your grow group and you've got your oikos and they're all in there like a plate of spaghetti. You know, filling up your life and and you've you've got all that now. You're, you're busy. What do you do when you really, something's really important and you want to remember it? You find some way. You, you make sure it's in your phone or, or your computer or 
on a scrap of napkins. I don't know if anyone still does. You know, you do something. You leave yourself post-it notes, you know, on the ice cream in the freezer so you know you'll see it. I, I don't know. You make sure. If it's important, you make sure. Now, the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us not just to go, oh, yeah, I remember. But to go, oh, yeah, I remember what's most important. And I pause in all that busyness to think about what's most important, the Lord Jesus. We're going to serve you the, the bread and the cup now, and so I'm going to ask you to do a couple things. I know it's hard, but, but uh, we're going to put those into your hands, and I'm going to ask you to keep listening all at the same time, so I know that stuff, but uh, I'm not sure I would be able to do it, so that's not fair, but you, you try. In the Bible, remembering is a really active term. It's, a, it's not just a mental thing. In Psalm 25, 6 and 7, it says, uh, remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are, you are good, O Lord. So what's he saying? Lord, I think you forgot that I exist. No, God doesn't forget those things. Go ahead and come on up and, and serve right away. Whoever's ready, just come on up and pass some out. <laughs> We'll get it rolling here. So he's not saying, the, the writer here isn't saying, you know, I, I think you've forgotten me mentally. He's saying, Lord, I want you to remember me based on your mercy, your love. And what's he talking about? His, his covenant love, based on your promises. Now, it's true, Lord, that I've been rebellious. You could, you could treat me based on my actions, but I, I don't want that. <laughs> Isn't that true for all of us? Don't treat me based on how I act. Treat me based on what you promised, God. That's what I really hope from you. And so remembering is this really powerful thing, and that's repeated many, 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 many times in the Old Testament. God, remember your covenant love, your promises. Act based on your promises. With people, it can be used in the same way, both good and bad. In Psalm 106, 7, it says, When our fathers were in Egypt... They gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Again, it's not saying, think about this. If you were a part of this group of people, and you come up against the sea, and the charioteers are coming to destroy you, and the, the sea opens up, and you walk through, and, and then the chariots come in, and the, the army's destroyed, and you're rescued. A week later, are you going, now let's see, what happened last week? I don't remember I don't think so. You know, it's silly. And what he's saying here is is not that they forgot in their minds. It's that their their rebellion required them to act as though people who didn't experience that. To rebel against God at that point, a week, I don't know, however long after, being, being rescued like that in that miraculous way, the only way you could do it is to pretend it didn't happen. So it says we need to remember happens in positive ways too this is a a view of the future still though it's from psalm 22 all the ends of the earth will remember and they'll turn to the lord and all the families of the nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to the lord and he rules over the nations the basis for which we more often say every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord because they'll remember they'll get it oh I got it. I got it. So remembering is a powerful word. It's, a, it's an activity. 
And for us now, it's an activity of worship. Not to just be like, oh, I remember Jesus. <laughs> Heard about him in Sunday school. But to remember him deeply and significantly. Would you do that now for a moment in silence before we eat and drink? Lord Jesus, in both this bread and this cup, we do remember you. We eat this meal in remembrance of you. And we ask that you would help us, that it would be that worshipful, that that deep, life-changing kind of remembrance. That this meal would be the, the kind that stays with us this day and this week. You would change us to, to be people who uh, who act and and think and feel like people who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God, the bread of heaven. We remember you. Jesus said, eat this bread in remembrance of me. The cup is a new covenant access, you have friendship, you have the love of God because of his blood. Remember him as you drink. So we can give thanks and worship around the Lord's Supper. We, we remember him. One more thing is that we can proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, Paul says. And we do that even today. Proclaiming is kind of an interesting word. It's fairly simple, just sort of speaking terminology. I could speak to you. I could yell at you. I could talk with you. I could proclaim to you. That's not one we use a lot and, and, you know, probably lots of reasons for that. But I know one reason is that it's probably not a popular concept if you really think about what it means. Proclaiming involves, first of all, having a, a strong personal commitment about something. And then proclaiming means that you want to broadcast that widely. And I think in our world in general, it's okay if you have a strong personal conviction about something and stay quiet, or you can broadcast something very widely as long as it's not a personal conviction and it's kind of fluff. That's okay too, but put them together and it's not real popular. But here at the Lord's Supper, we make a proclamation. We make a bold statement. And first for ourselves and then for others. For ourselves, it's about hope. Until the, Lord's, the Lord returns, we do this. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. There's a future uh, outlook here. And you need hope. You need hope to, to survive this day, this week. And here it is. We say... This is what I believe. This is my hope that Christ not only died for me, but will come again. But it's something we announce as well and we proclaim to others. 1 Peter 3.15, In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you 
the reason for the hope that you have. And here's where it starts, and obviously we're, we're doing that in conversation and in, li- in life with people, but it starts here. Wait a minute, this is what I believe. This is where my hope is. And this is where hope is available to anyone who would come to the Lord himself. The bread from heaven. We're going to conclude today with a song. We're going to go right to it. Uh, It's a song about making a proclamation, about making a statement, and, and just finish strong right there. So, Chris, would you lead us? Would you all stand? We're going to sing this together. It's called The Stand. And uh, uh, going forth, believing that uh, Christ is our hope. Let's sing.